Chapter Fifty Two of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gus Erdem. Whether Mr. Neefit broke Ralph Newton's little statuette, a miniature copy in porcelain of the Apollo Belvedere, which stood in a corner of Ralph's room, and in the possession of which he took some pride, from awkwardness in his wrath or of malice prepense, was never known. He told the servant that he had whisked it down with his coat-tails, but Ralph always thought that the breeches-maker had intended to make a general ruin, but had been cowed by the noise of his first attack. He did at any rate abstain from breaking other things, and when the servant entered the room condescended to make some careless apology. A little trifle like that ain't nothing between me and your master, Jack, said Mr. Neefit, after accounting for the accident by his coat-tails. I am not Jack, said the indignant valet, with a strong foreign accent. I am named Adolf. Adolf, are you? I don't think much of Adolf for a name, but it ain't no difference to me. Just pick up them bits, will you? The man turned a look of scorn on Mr. Neefit, and did pick up the bits. He intended to obey his master as far as might be possible, but was very unwilling to wait upon the breeches-maker. He felt that the order which had been given to him was very cruel. It was his duty, and his pleasure, to wait upon gentlemen. But this man he knew to be a tradesman, who measured customers for hunting apparel in his own shop. It was hard upon him that his master should go and leave him to be insulted, ordered about and trodden upon by a breeches-maker. "'Get me a bit of steak, will you?' demanded Neefit. "'A bit of the rump, not too much done, with a gravy in it, and an onion. "'What are you staring at? Didn't you hear what your master said to you?' "'Onion and rump-steak.' "'Yes, rump-steak and onion.' I ain't going out of this till I've had a bit of grub. Your master knows all about it. I'm going to have more nor that out of him before I've done with him. Neefit did at last succeed, and had his rump steak and onion, together with more brandy and soda water, eating and drinking as he sat in Ralph's beautiful new easy chair, not very much to his own comfort. A steak at the Prince's Feathers in Conduit Street would have been very much more pleasant to him, and he would have preferred half and half in the pewter to brandy and soda water. But he felt a pride in using his power in a fashion that would be disgraceful to his host. When he had done his steak, he pulled his pipe out of his pocket and smoked. Against this, Adolph remonstrated stoutly, but quite in vain. The captain won't mind a little backy smoke out of my pipe, he said. He always has his smoke comfortable when he comes down to me. At last, about four o'clock, he did go away, assuring Adolph that he would repeat his visit very soon. I means to see a deal of the captain this season, he said. At last, however, he retreated, and Adolph opened the door of the house for him without speaking a word. "'Bye-bye,' said Neefit. "'I'll be here again before long.' 
Ralph, on that afternoon, came home to dress for dinner at about seven, in great fear lest Neefit should still be found in his rooms. "'No, sir, he go away at last,' said Adolf, with a melancholy shake of his head. "'Has he done much harm?' "'The Apollo gone, and he had a rump steak and onions, and a pipe. What was I to do? I hope he will never come again.' and so also did Mr. Newton hope that Neefit would never come again. He was going to dine with Lady Erdham, the wife of a Berkshire baronet, who had three fair daughters. At this period of his life he found the aristocracy of Berkshire and Hampshire to be very civil to him, and indeed the world at large was disposed to smile on him. But there was very much in his lot to make him unhappy. He had on that morning been utterly rejected by Clarissa Underwood. It may perhaps be true that he was not a man to break his heart because a girl rejected him. He was certainly one who could have sung the old song, If she be not fair for me, what care I how fair she be? And yet Clarissa's conduct had distressed him, and had caused him to go about throughout the whole afternoon with his heart almost in his boots. He had felt her coldness to him much more severely than he had that of Mary Bonner. He had taught himself to look upon that little episode with Mary as though it had really meant nothing. She had just crossed the sky of his heaven like a meteor, and for a moment had disturbed its serenity. And Polly also had been to him a false light, leading him astray for a while under exceptional, and, as he thought, quite pardonable circumstances but dear little Clary had been his own peculiar star, a star that was bound to have been true to him, even though he might have erred for a moment in his worship, a star with a sweet, soft, enduring light, that he had always assured himself he might call his own when he pleased. And now this soft, sweet star had turned upon him and scorched him. "'When I get home,' she said to him, I shall find that you have already made an offer to Patience. He certainly had not expected such scorn from her, and then he was so sure in his heart that if she would have accepted him, he would have been henceforth so true to her, so good to her. He would have had such magnanimous pleasure in showering upon her pretty little head all the good things at his disposal, that for her own sake the pity was great." When he had been five minutes in his cab, bowling back toward his club, he was almost minded to return and give her one more chance. She would just have suited him, and as for her, would it not be a heaven on earth for her if she would only consent to forget that foolish, unmeaning little episode? Could Clary have forgotten the episode and been content to care little or nothing for that easiness of feeling which made our Ralph what he was, she might probably have been happy as the mistress of the priory. But she would not have forgotten, and would not have been content. She had made up her little heart stoutly that Ralph the heir should sit in it no longer, and it was well for him that he did not go back. He went to his club instead not daring to go to his rooms. The insanity of Neefit was becoming to him a terrible bane. It was, too, a cruelty which he certainly had done nothing to deserve. 
he could lay his hand on his heart and assure himself that he had treated that mad, pig-headed tradesman well in all respects. He knew himself to be the last man to make a promise and then to break it willfully. He had certainly borrowed money of Neefit, and at the probable cost of all his future happiness he had with a nobleness which he could not himself sufficiently admire done his very best to keep the hard terms which in his distress he had allowed to be imposed upon himself he had been loyal even to the breeches-maker and this was the return which was made to him what was he to do should neefit cling to his threat and remain permanently at his chambers there were the police and no doubt he could rid himself of his persecutor but he understood well the barbarous power which some underbred, well-trained barrister would have of asking him questions which it would be so very disagreeable for him to answer. He lacked the courage to send for the police. Jackie Joram had just distinguished himself greatly and nearly exterminated a young gentleman who had married one girl while he was engaged to another. Jackie Joram might ask him questions as to his little dinners at Alexandra Lodge, which it would nearly kill him to answer. He was very unhappy, and began to think that it might be as well that he should travel for twelve months. Neefit could not persecute him up the Nile, or among the Rocky Mountains, and perhaps Clary's ferocity would have left her, would he return after twelve months of glorious journeyings, still constant to his first affections. In the meantime he did not dare to go home till it would be absolutely necessary that he should dress for dinner. In the billiard-room of his club he found Lord Polperow, the eldest son of the Marquis of Megavissy, pretty Paul as he was called by many young men, and by some of the young ladies about town. Lord Paul Perrault had become his fast friend since the day on which his airship was established, and now he encountered him with friendly intimacy. "'Hallo, Newton,' said the young lord. "'Have you seen old Neefit lately?' There were eight or ten men in the room, and suddenly there was silence among the queues. Ralph would have given his best horse to be able to laugh it off, but he found that he could not laugh. He became very hot and knew that he was red in the face. "'What about old Neefit?' he said. "'I've just come from Conduit Street, and he says that he has been dining with you. He swears that you are to marry his daughter.' "'He be damned,' said Newton. It was a poor way of getting out of the scrape, and so Ralph felt. "'But what's the meaning of it all? He's telling everybody in London that you went down to stay with him at Margate.' Neefit has gone mad lately, said Captain Fuchs, with a good-natured determination to stand by his friend in misfortune. But how about the girl, Newton? asked his lordship. You may have her yourself, Paul, if she don't prefer a young shoemaker to whom I believe she's engaged. She's very pretty, and has got a lot of money, which will suit you to a tea. He tried to put a good face on it, but nevertheless he was very hot and red in the face. "'I'd put a stop to this if I were you,' said another friend, confidentially and in a whisper. "'He's not only telling everybody, but writing letters about it.' "'Oh, I know,' said Ralph. "'How can I help what a madman does? It's a bore, of course.' 
then he sauntered out again feeling sure that his transactions with mr neefit would form the subject of conversation in the club billiard-room for the next hour and a half it would certainly become expedient that he should travel abroad he felt it to be quite a relief when he found that mr neefit was not waiting for him at his chambers adolph he said as soon as he was dressed that man must never be allowed to put his foot inside the door again ah the apollo gone and he did it express i don't mind the figure but he must never be allowed to enter this place again i shall not stay up long but while we are here you must not leave the place till six he won't come in the evening then he put a sovereign into the man's hands and went out to dine at lady erdham's lady erdham had three fair daughters with pretty necks and flaxen hair and blue eyes and pug noses all wonderfully alike they ranged from twenty-seven to twenty-one there being sons between and it began to be desirable that they should be married since ralph had been in town the erdham mansion in cavendish square had been opened to him with almost maternal kindness he had accepted the kindness but being fully alive to the purposes of matronly intrigue had had his little jokes in reference to the young ladies he liked young ladies generally but was well aware that a young man is not obliged to offer his hand and heart to every girl that is civil to him he and the erdham girls had been exceedingly intimate but he had had no idea whatever of sharing newton priory with an erdham now however in his misery he was glad to go to a house in which he would be received with an assured welcome everybody smiled upon him sir george in these days was very cordial greeting him with that genial esoteric warmth which is always felt by one english country gentleman with a large estate for another equally blessed six months ago when it was believed that ralph had sold his inheritance to his uncle sir george when he met the young man addressed him in a very different fashion as he entered the room he felt the warmth of the welcoming the girls one and all had ever so many things to say to him they all hunted and they all wanted him to look at horses for them lady erdham was more matronly than ever and at the same time was a little fussy she would not leave him among the girls and at last succeeded in getting him off into a corner of the back drawing-room now mr newton she said i am going to show you that i put the greatest confidence in you so you may said ralph wondering whether one of the girls was to be offered to him out of hand at the present moment he was so low in spirits that he would probably have taken either i have had a letter said lady erdham whispering the words into his ear and then she paused such a strange letter and very abominable i've shown it to no one not even to sir george i wouldn't let one of the girls see it for ever so much then there was another pause i don't believe a word of it mr newton but i think it right to show it to you because it's about you about me said ralph with his mind fixed at once upon mr neefit yes indeed and when i tell you it refers to my girls too you will see how strong is my confidence in you if either had been specially named of course i could not have shown it 
Then she handed him the letter which poor Ralph read as follows. My lady, I'm told as Mr. Ralph Newton of Newton Priory is sweet upon one of your ladyship's daughters. I think it my duty to tell your ladyship he's engaged to marry my girl, Marianne Neefit. Yours most respectful, Thomas Neefit, breeches maker, Conduit Street. It's a lie, said Ralph. I'm sure it's a lie, said Lady Erdham. Only I thought it right to show it to you. Ralph took Gus Erdham down to dinner and did his very best to make himself agreeable. Gus was the middle one of the three and was certainly a fine girl. The Erdham girls would have no money, but Ralph was not a greedy man, except when he was in great need. It must not be supposed, however, that on this occasion he made up his mind to marry Gus Erdham. But, as on previous occasions, he had been able to hold all the Erdhams in a kind of subjection to himself, feeling himself to be bigger than they, as hitherto he had been conscious that he was bestowing and they receiving. So now, in his present misfortune, did he recognize that Gus was a little bigger than himself, and that it was for her to give and for him to take and Gus was able to talk to him as though she also entertained the same conviction. Gus was very kind to him, and he felt grateful to her. Lady Erdham saw Gus alone in her bedroom that night. "'I believe he's a very good young man,' said Lady Erdham. "'If he's managed rightly. And as for all this about the horrid man's daughter, it don't matter at all. He'd live it down in a month if he were married.' I don't think anything about that, mamma. I dare say he's had his fun, just like other men. Only, my dear, he's one of that sort that have to be fixed. It's so hard to fix them, mamma. It needn't be hard to fix him, that is, if you'll only be steady. He's not sharp and hard and callous like some of them. He doesn't mean any harm and if he once speaks out he isn't one that can't be kept to time. His manners are nice. I don't think the property is involved. But I'll find out from papa. And he's just the man to think his wife the pink of perfection. Lady Erdham had read our hero's character not inaccurately. End of chapter 52 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina